When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Child running wild in woods of Lissadell, young lady from the big house, seen in a flowered dress gathering wildflowers. Ascendancy queen of Hunt's house parties, practical joke. Who could foretell, O oh fiery shade, impetuous bone, where all was regular, self sufficient, gay, their lovely hoyden lost in a nation's heroine? Laughterless now, the sweet domain. And the gaunt house looks blank on Sligo Bay. A nest decayed, an eagle flown. The Paris studio, your playboy count were not enough, nor castle splendour and fame of horsemanship. You were the tinder waiting a match, a runner tuned for the pistol's sound. Impatient shade, long-suffering bone. In a balalic cottage you found a store of Sinn Féin papers, you read, maybe the old sheets can file the time. The flash lights up a whole Ireland which you have never known before. A nest betrayed, its eagles gone. The road to Connolly and Stephen's Green showed clear. The great heart which defied Irish prejudice, English snipers, died a little not to have shared a grave with the fourteen. Oh, fiery shade, intransigent bone. And when the treaty emptied the British jails, a haggard woman returned and Dublin went wild to greet her. But still it was not enough. An iota of compromise she cried and the cause fails. Nest disarrayed, eagles undone. Countess Constance Markovitch was a West of Ireland woman, one of the Anglo-Irish. In middle life she changed her role from that of Lady of Leisure to ardent activist within the labour and nationalist movements in Ireland. From 1910 until her death in 1927, she founded the Fianna, she became a leader in the Irish Citizen Army, she was deeply involved as a labour leader in the lockout of 1913, she joined Common Amon, fought in 1916 and campaigned in the War of Independence. She was later a minister in the first government, she fought on the Republican side in the Civil War and died just before de Valera's decision to take the oath, a decision she would have been reluctant to implement. The Gorebooth family had a reputation for being good landlords in Sligo. So what moved Constance Gorebooth to change from a stance of benevolence to one of revolution? Her family opposed her activities and to this day, Aideen Gorbuth, her niece, still at her home in Lissadell, recalls the time with regret. 
She describes Constance's childhood as a happy one. I should think very lively and a lot of riding and fun, I think. And, um, I think she had also had a canoe. I've seen photographs of it. That This is when she was fairly grown up, that she used to paddle around the bay. and um, I think they used to do a little bit of sailing and things like that. Mm-hmm. And did she hunt? Oh, yes. She was very fond of hunting. And she had this cob who... Um, Somebody told me when it was pensioned off, its legs were as clean as... never had any injuries or anything, and she was always in the first flight. She had very good judgment as to where to jump and that, mm-hmm. which is rather necessary in rough country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> were the family a bit upset with her by getting so involved in politics? I think very, yes. Can you tell me something about that? I mean, do they, in fact, really not want to have anything more to do with her? Oh, no, they didn't take that attitude, but I think they thought she was foolish, and I think also that they were very worried. I mean, I know my parents were very, very worried when she was condemned to death, and they went everywhere to try and get commuted. And um, even though my father definitely had quite a different outlook, he um, never barred the doors on her. She was always welcome to come home. She came. And I think somebody asked her when she was at the height of her... Asked him, rather, when she was at the height of her activities, how he felt about her. And she, he said, she's just as dear to me as when we were children picking the daffodils together. Mm-hmm. And what about the politics? Was there, was there any element of pride at what she had achieved or that sort of thing? Well, I don't know. I wouldn't exactly think that, but I think um, what my, I mean, it was rather muddling for us as children. As you can imagine, we asked questions and that, and um, my father always said, well, she had the courage of her convictions and left it at that. Mm-hmm. He said we had nothing to be ashamed of in her, but I don't think... Personally, I don't think violence achieves anything. No, no. Do, did you hear how she actually got involved initially? Well, somebody right? told me that she was very impressionable and for some... Um, political speech she had on a carriage step somewhere. I don't know who it was, actually. She was presented at court? She was, yes, yes. and she was considered very, very good-looking. When I grew up first, I met an old Lord Weems, and he told me that she and her sister Eva and my grandmother were the three best-looking women he ever saw. Do you know anything about her, her work or her life as an artist? Yes, that I do know a little bit about. I know she went to the Slade in London. She had a terrible job to get to it because, you see, in those days it wasn't considered proper for a girl to go to an art school and she was 30. Before she was allowed to go for one hour, the chaperone, each day. Well, then she was considered so very promising she got off to Paris and that's where she met the Pole, who she subsequently married. Mm-hmm. And as I show you around the house, I can show you quite a lot of her work. Mm-hmm. Now, what about the man she married? Um, th- they spent long periods of their married life apart. Did, does he or did he ever keep up contact with Ireland afterwards? Well, I don't know how much contact he kept up. His son came back in the 40s. and um, No, it was in the 30s, I think, was it? I was in Dublin, and um, he was in... Uh, I think that was his son, not her son. It mm-hmm. was her stepson. But he, he always sort of wrote to my mother and things like that, I think. Mm-hmm. Were they close, do you think, the stepson and, and the countess? I think so, yes. Mm-hmm. What about her own daughter? Where is she now? She died. She was a very sad figure, really, because she felt that her mother didn't care for her because she abandoned her at the age of six and went into the rising, you see, and it left a terrible impression on this child. She thought she wasn't wanted, you know. 
And what happened to her? Well, my grandmother was very, very kind to her and looked after her and made a home for her. And um, I think she did rather a foolish thing. She sent her to an English school, which I mean, you'd have to have a good sense of humour to get over, you know, your mother leading rising in this country and rather difficult for a young child to combat with, I think, perhaps. Mm. Did she talk much ab about her mother? Was she curious about her mother? Was she fond of her? I think she was fond of her, but I think she felt that she had let her down very much. That was the sort of feeling she had about her. And I think poor Maeve had a sad life, really. The Light of Evening. Lissadell. Great windows open to the south. Two girls in silk kimonos. Both beautiful. One a gazelle. But a raving autumn shears blossom from the summer's wreath. The older is condemned to death, pardoned, drags out lonely years conspiring among the ignorant. Sean McBride is the son of Maud Gone McBride, who was friendly with Countess Markovitch since their days together at art school in Paris. Oh, she was very dynamic, full of action, uh, much more action oriented than mother in a different kind of way. In, in what, where was the difference? Uh, she was always up and doing things. Mother would be quite happy to sit down and paint and sketch and then, then do things, but uh, Madame Marfitt was always on the go, on, on the move. She would never stay put for a very long time. Well, I think Carlos then concentrated on forming the Citizen Army in the early days of Citizen Army before the war. Mm. And uh, then in uh, founding the Fianna. What sort of a person was she? That you heard of or that you recall? I think she was very good company. I think my mother told me that, that she was very lively. And my mother and she were very great friends, apart from anything to do with my father, I think. And, um, I think my mother could have known an awful lot about what was going on, but she felt that she didn't really want to know because it would be a very difficult position to be in, wouldn't it? And then when my Aunt Constance was dying and they went to her. My mother told me, this doesn't please Irish people, but my mother told me that um, poor Aunt Constance was very sad about her life and said if she'd had to lead it over again, she wouldn't have done what she did. She didn't think. And she thought if she had a life like young people have nowadays and can develop their talents and do all different things like women can, you know, um, she wouldn't have done it, she didn't think. But then that doesn't please people at all, you know. It, what sort of education would she have had? Well, I think she had a governess. I think they had a German governess. And w w she wouldn't have gone to formal schooling then? No, I don't think age. so. I don't think anybody who sort of was reared in a house like that, or very rarely did, mm -hmm. go to a school at that stage. My brother Angus said that he heard that she could play the piano and that she used to accompany her husband when he was singing Polish songs in the Viceregal Lodge. Was she somebody who was into women's rights in, in that sort of well, way? Well, she was a suffragette, you know that, I'm sure. And apparently she was helping Eva, who was in Manchester at this time. That was her sister, my other aunt, in, with the suffragette agitation or whatever it was. And for some reason she was driving a coach and four through Manchester and a man shouted up at her, can you cook a dinner? And she said, yes, but can you drive a coach and four? Okay. <laughs> I joined Fina probably 1917 or so, she was quite active. She would turn up and quite very active. And I remember the first election campaign I ever took part in 
uh, was her election in 1918, I think, 1918 elections. She was standing for a constituency in Dublin, which I think would be about the equivalent of Dublin South Central. Yeah, I knew she set up the, the Department of Labour. She, she was first, and I think, the only Minister for Labour in the world at that time, that the first woman Minister for Labour. Uh, and she was very active in setting this up and establishing a relationship with the trade union movement. I deplore the idea that women's role is not a companion or a friend, but a beauty, holding dominion by her careful manipulation of her sex and her good looks. It would be better for women to dress suitably in short skirts and strong boots, leave your jewels in the bank and buy a revolver. Don't trust your feminine charm and your capacity for getting on the soft side of men, but take up your responsibilities and be prepared to go on your own way, depending for safety on your own courage, your own truth and your own common sense, and not on the problematic chivalry of the men you may meet on the way. The two brilliant classes of women who follow this higher ideal are suffragettes and the trade union or labour woman. In these lie the hope of the future. Margaret Skinner was second in command to the Countess Markovitch in the College of Surgeons during the 1916 Rising. Then I saw the British soldiers coming down Harcourt Street. The Countess stood motionless, waiting for them to come near. She was a lieutenant in the Irish Citizen Army, and in her uniform and black hat with great plumes looked the most impressive. At length she raised her gun to her shoulder. It was an automatic which she had converted into a rifle and took aim. The shots rang out and I saw the two officers leading the column drop to the streets. As the Countess was taking aim again, the soldiers, without firing a shot, turned and retreated in great confusion. Madame discovers 67 rifles and 15,000 rounds of ammunition. This had belonged, no doubt, to the training corps of the College of Surgeons and would have been used against us had we not reached the building first. On Wednesday, I did little dispatch riding and spent some time with Madame sniping from one of the semicircular windows in York Street. I could look across the tops of the trees, the British soldiers on the roof of University Church. Reading of hundreds of thousands attacking one another in big wars in open battle, this exchange of shots between two buildings across a Dublin street may seem trivial, but to us there could be nothing greater. Every shot we fired was a declaration to the world that Ireland was demanding an independence. For her part in the Rising, Countess Markovitch was condemned to death and imprisoned in Aylesbury Prison in England. From there she wrote to her sister Eva. Dearest old darling, the one thing I've gained by my exile is the privilege of writing a letter. But there's very little to say, as I don't suppose that an essay on prison life would pass the censor, however interesting and amusing it might be. What you have called my misplaced sense of humour still remains to me, and I'm quite well and cheerful. I saw myself for the first time for over three months the other day. It's quite amusing to meet yourself as a stranger, 
We bowed and grinned, and I thought my teeth very dirty and very much wanting a dentist. And I'd got very thin and very sunburnt. In six months I shall not recognize myself at all, my memory of faces is so bad. I remember a fairy tale of a princess who banished mirrors when she began to grow old. I think it showed a great want of interest in life. The less I see my face, the more curious I grow about it, and I don't resent it growing old. It's queer and lonely here. There was so much life in Mount Joy. There were seagulls and pigeons, which I had quite tame. There were stop-press cries, little boys splashing in the canal and singing Irish songs, shrill and discordant, but with such vigour. She that but little patience knew from childhood on had now so much a grey gull lost its fear and flew down to her cell and there alit and there endured her fingers touch and from her fingers ate its bit. Did she in touching that lone wing recall the years before her mind became a bitter and abstract thing her thoughts on popular enmity blind and leader of the blind drinking the foul ditch where they lie when long ago I saw her ride under Ben Bulban to the meet the beauty of her countryside with all youth's lonely wildness stirred she seemed to have grown clean and sweet like any rock-bred seaborne bird seaborne or balanced on the air when first it sprang out of the nest upon some lofty rock to stare upon the cloudy canopy, while under its storm-beaten breast cried out the hollows of the sea. Sheila Humphreys was an active member of Common Amon. She first met Countess Markovitch after her triumphal homecoming from prison in 1917. I do remember the, the time she was released... Mm-hmm. And we all went down. She, you, know, you have that photograph where she was sitting up in the car and we nearly went mad because she was released separately from the men. Actually, really, she used to be um, uh, <laughs> half in the, in the moon at lots of these meetings, you know? Really? Yes. In what sense? In that, that she thought all this kind of thing was an awful waste of time. She was a person that would like to get things done, Mm -hmm. just like she went out in 1916, Mm. get results. Mm. And I think she hated meetings, and she hated arguments, and she hated all the hair-splitting we used to have all our lives. We spent our time hair-splitting on principles that weren't principles at all. She was, indeed, half the time she used to be, you know, she was a great painter. And great, and she'd always, always managed to have some kind of paper and a pencil, and she'd be sketching either some of the members that were there, or, and uh, as I say, when, when we'd get into petty discussions, you could see Madam would let her thoughts go someplace else altogether. Mm-hmm. But Madam had a wonderfully, wonderful. Um, Way, but she didn't have to say anything. She only had to stand there, and the people would go mad because of what she was. And she did. She never, she never paused. And she was very interested. She tried to get us all taught elocution. She did teach us herself. Actually, she had classes because she wanted to. She was like that. She wanted to bring younger people on, 
the same. And we'd all say we couldn't speak and say, well, there's no such thing as you can't speak. You can speak. All you've got to do is to start and to have courage. Because, of course, she, ha she had such courage. But, um, oh, she was. She, was she, she, she had a great command of language and then spoke very clearly and very nicely, too, mm -hmm. as well. She was released from prison after 1916. She had a wonderful homecoming. And, and um, she was in Liberty Hall. And... Uh, <laughs> she had, I, I'm sure she had stopped in London. She had bought a lovely hat with a ostrich feather in it, you see. And she was wearing her old cardigan at the same time. And the first I saw her was on a sidecar with a jivey who looked just delighted with himself. And there was she with the ostrich feather and the cardigan. And the next thing, we, uh, we uh, that would be in a newspaper, uh, we came up from Wexford for a day in Dublin and uh, I had made up my mind to to bring something mm -hmm. uh, to the uh, to the Liberty Hall kitchen where they uh, where they had food for the people after the big strike they were still uh, running that kitchen and there was Con Makovich in the uh, uh, ladling out I don't know what food of some kind and she came over and we uh, spoke to me and we had a few words like that and then I went home and I got a letter from her and it was a thrill to me but when my family found out that I'd had a letter from Countess Makovic my grandmother cried to that evil woman bringing young girls to their destruction. Why did she say uh, that? Uh, yes, uh, just the the bitterness after uh, uh, anyone who wasn't for you was against you. Moira Comerford, another colleague in Common Amon. Moira Comerford spoke of Madame's daily work. Stunting. She was a stunter. I don't think she was... Um, I have found no evidence that she was a good Labour minister, really. But uh, it is true that Labour courts were invented, uh, were started at that time, and that there was a, an interchange of uh, people to do judge or justice, whatever you would like to call them, uh, between the ordinary Sinn Féin courts, and I think probably the land courts and the Labour courts. When you say that Madame Markovitch was stunting, what do you mean by stunting? Um, turning up here and there, wearing disguise, dressed up as an old woman with a basket, throwing it all away and getting up and making a speech. And, and uh, it was so effective. <coughs> Her constituency was the St. Patrick's Division, and... and uh, the police there were determined to... I have seen a circular, and whether it survives or not, a, a direction to all the barracks to have a, a cyclist ready and to send word immediately if the Countess should appear in their area. And that they would at all times have a, a van and a 
uh, whatever was necessary, ready to go and catch her with no other duty in, in the castle. And uh, they did catch her. Uh, but, but that's what she was at. I, I call that stunting. Countess Markovitch made a major contribution to the treaty debate in the Doyle. I rise today to oppose with all the force of my will, with all the force of my whole existence, this so-called treaty. First, I stand true to my principles as a Republican and to my principles as one pledged to the teeth for freedom for Ireland. I stand on that first and foremost. While Ireland is not free, I remain a rebel, unconverted and unconvertible. There is no word strong enough for it. I am pledged as a rebel because I am pledged to the one thing, a free and independent republic. I know what I mean, a state run by the Irish people for the people. That means a government that looks after the rights of the people before the rights of property. My idea is the workers' republic for which Connolly died. It was in the Civil War, I think I knew her most. Had most to do with her. She was always willing to speak at meetings and do anything we'd ask her. When Fianna Fáil decided, when De Valera, in other words, decided to leave Sinn Féin and start Fianna Fáil. Can you tell me what happened and... Was there a meeting or did she...? Oh, yes, of course. We had two or three meetings as to whether we'd approve of the new suggestions. And uh, when we found that Madam Madam was going to... It nearly broke our heart because to to lose Madam was, was something awful. What about the end of her days? She seems to have sort of gone downhill rather quickly. Yes, yes, yes. She did. Well, of course, you know, you know that uh, there was a, a, a fuel strike shortly, I think, after that. And she had an old car that wasn't easy to drive, wasn't easy. And she took that car down to the nearest bog she could find and got it filled up with turf to bring back to people in Dublin that had no fires. And on the way back, it stopped. And she got out herself and tried to start it, cranked it up and uh, it backfired and she broke her arm trying to do it and I don't think she ever really recovered after that, I never remember her at a meeting or anything Mm. after the time she broke her arm, going down for fuel for the people who had none. Would you say she died happy with the way things had gone? Oh no she couldn't have Did the Countess know what she wanted? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, she did. She ah, had a clear yes. picture. Ah, yes. She had a clear picture. What would you yes. say, in, yeah. in, to use modern parlance, were her politics? Well, of course, she was always on the side of the underprivileged and the underdog. She certainly would have liked a social, socialist republic. Definitely. She, she'd never have put up with what we accepted, uh, finally. We were very, we were very, very rigid about the uh, not accepting the treaty. Um, if um, she would have liked to stay on, you know, 
and still be, you know, still follow Devilians into politics. No, we weren't having that. You don't remember anything at all about her daughter or her husband? No, I saw him very tall, very, I suppose, dignified figure. He he didn't go the whole way with her, you know, on drama of other things. I don't think he did. Uh, and and uh, he was a bit inclined to to uh, to stick to his class. Was there ever the feeling about the Countess that she alone knew, you know, and that she would dictate? Oh, I wouldn't think so. No, I wouldn't think so. I know. Uh, she she wouldn't have been labelling out the soup herself, you know. That when I went in, she'd have been bossing the place. Where did you die? In Saint Patrick Dunn's Hospital, in in the ward, and and um, it was said that she was insulted. There, Kevin O'Higgins had been shot, and somebody resentful of that had said things to her. But then it's that's contradicted her that she got very, very kind treatment there before she died. She opted to join Fianna Fáil. Yes. Can you tell me about that? Did it surprise you? I think it surprised me a little bit, yes, uh, when I disagreed with her on that. I remember discussing it with her, uh, and she felt that it was the only option to make, to make progress. I didn't agree with her at the time. Why did she? Did she, if you discussed she it, she She felt an opportunity of making progress, or making, pushing forward, and making progress and regaining some of the positions we lost in civil war. No. Was she a woman who believed in, in doing, getting on and doing something herself, or did she believe in working within a group and within a movement? I think she believed in working within a group and within a movement, and uh, liked rather the discipline of a movement. I think that was uh, that operated very much her mind in in 1916 Army, and then afterwards in the labour movement, trying to work with the labour movement, unified labour movement into something worthwhile. But what do you think her view would be of of how we developed as a, an, a republic? I think probably uh, very disappointed at the lack of economic progress. Uh, I think she had, she shared to a certain extent on economic matters, she shared a good deal Bulma Hobson's views, though politically she didn't. But I think she got Bulma Hobson as being the one person in the Republican movement that had sound economic views. The Cochlan family home in Rathmines was a great Republican refuge right through the Troubles. It was there Countess Markovich spent her last years. Louis Cochlan was a child at the time and remembers Madame vividly. She lived in my, my mother's house, yes. Mm -hmm. She came there out of jail, after I think it was after the Civil War, and uh, because she had no house of her own. Um, she had furniture stored someplace, but I don't know anything about that. Uh, it was a, a nationalist house. It was, it was always in, in the tan times. We were never raided in the tan time. It was a nationalist house, but we were raided after the Civil War. We, lo we all loved her. We all loved her. I think we loved her because she loved all of us. There were nine of us in the family, and she loved all of us. Did she, did she like children? Did she, like she, children? she loved children. She really loved children. She was happiest with children. 
Because there was the feeling that she had somehow or another deserted her daughter and that this was because she had no feeling for children at all. No, that is absolutely untrue, totally untrue. The thing of leaving her daughter with the, the child's grandmother was not... A, she wasn't rejecting the child. It was just that she was in, in the political movement and she was going in and out of jail and things, and uh, in and out of uh, 1916 and that. And uh, the child didn't suffer at all by it. The child had a wonderful time and was more suited to, being to, to the life she had in Sligo in this uh, ascendancy-type house because they were all, she was that kind of person. And she, I know she didn't hold it against her mother because she often visited her mother later on. And uh, they weren't as close, possibly, as other mothers and daughters might be, but there was no animosity. Now, how about how she dealt with, with you children, the Coughlin children? Oh, we, we had a wonderful time with her. We really had a wonderful time with her. Uh, she used to, t she had this old Model T Ford that she loved, it was her heart's delight and she would take us all out in it, out on picnics up the mountains and uh, she used to always take her sketchbook with us and leave us r running around the mountains. Whenever she'd be going anywhere in the old Ford, she would be, be playing out in the garden and she would just come to the top of the, the steps down to the garden and she would just shout, children, children, come on, we're going out and we'd all file into the car and she would take us off Grafton Street, anywhere she was going. Did she go into great elaborate preparations for these picnics? Oh, no. No, she would take us all again into Grafton Street, into Fuller's. It was always Fuller's. And she always bought a chocolate cake. Now, there'd be an awful lot of us uh, in the car, but it was always the, the Fuller's chocolate cake, and we would go up to the mountains with this, and we would each get a piece of that. And, and that, that, was, that, was, that was the entire picnic. <laughs> they, they had offices in Suffolk Street, which in vain had offices. But uh, if she were going there, she would always she'd just bring us to Woolworths, tumble us all out the door, uh, say, go in now and have... I don't know whether she gave us a penny such happens. I don't remember that, but what we were to do in Woolworths, I don't remember. But we always enjoyed it. And then when she was finished in Sinn Féin office in Suffolk Street or wherever, she'd come to the door of Woolworths and say, children, children, at the top of her voice. Well, she always spoke very loudly. And we'd all come running, we'd all get into the car, and nobody took any. Now, we didn't think it was any very odd. Did the, did the rest of the people around? Everybody thought it was very odd. <laughs> we, we drew an awful lot of attention wherever we went with her in this Model T. Is this because of her voice? Well, the whole, the whole thing was odd, having a whole lot of children in the back of this very old car, and she, she always drew attention to herself because she was very tall and didn't, uh, didn't dress absolutely... Uh, uh, not, I was not, not normally, but... Uh, conventionally. Conventionally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she, she, we always drew a lot of attention to herself. When you say she didn't dress conventionally, how did she dress? Well, um, uh, she, well she always had the, the long, thick stockings and the big shoes, and she had a wraparound skirt always, a kind of a tweedy wraparound skirt and some kind of a jacket. And she, this, she used to use this wraparound skirt purposely, I think now, I may be making this up because Model T was always breaking down, and mostly up in the mountains, but anyhow, it was always breaking down. And she used to do all the repairs herself. She had a, a Model T Ford book that she called her Bible. And she uh, prided herself on always being able to mend it, mend it the car. So uh, she would uh, whip off the wraparound skirt and the long legs with the navy blue bloomers would uh, be show, and she'd get in onto the car, and these long legs would be sticking out onto the car. That drew a certain amount of attention, too.
days, was she into the daily uh, hurly-burly of politics at that time? Well, um, yes, uh, earlier on, I'd say, well, towards the end now, as far as, I don't remember that much about it. She was always around the house. She did, always did the garden. She did, it was a very big garden, and she took control and uh, did it all. We used to steal her strawberries and raspberries and loganberries, and she used to get very cross. But she used to give us, um, I think it was penny a dozen for snails, if we gathered them in the garden. And uh, she loved the garden. Now, her, ca her car took up an awful lot of time. And uh, she taught herself Irish from a book. And uh, what else? Well, there was, it was always on the edge of politics anyhow. People were always coming and going. And of course, there's Fina Aaron. And uh, people were always visiting her. And uh, De Valeria used to come and visit her, not very often. And he would always send a runner along beforehand because he didn't want any people around when he'd be coming. Everything had to be, everybody had to be cleared away. He was very conscious of his own importance. And of course, she called him the chief and she adored him. She really adored him. Well, the whole question um, remains unanswered whether or not she would have taken the oath. Can you remember any discussions and how she felt about taking the oath when, oh, when Dev decided very, to stop very, very distinctly, I remember them. She, uh, she adored De Valera, as I say, but she, she was going to have great trouble in taking the, the oath. Uh, I know this disturbed her a lot, and I know there was great discussion at the time she died that at least she wasn't uh, faced with this problem of having to decide to take the oath or part with de Valera, as I say, whom she adored. Mm. It would have been very difficult for her. Absolutely impossible, I'd say. She was very, very uh, conscious of the poor of Dublin, and she tried in every way to help them. She wanted to join them. She would. Uh, she actually went so far as to try and get a flat in one of those blocks of flats where the poor were in. Oliver Bond flat. Yes, that's it. And uh, they, they d that didn't work because they, they, she couldn't be accepted by the poor on their own level. You know, she was too different. And some of them loved her, some of them mocked her, of course. But uh, she, when she'd go along to them and she'd find them in purse, I have seen her carrying sacks of coal up on her back, up long st uh, stairs, long st flights of stairs, to poor people in, in these flats. Would you say there was any truth in the possibility that at the end of her days um, she regretted her whole involvement in 1916 and politics and in and out of prison? Not at all. Not for a moment did she regret any of it. Not for a single second. She would have, she would have done it all again the same way. You're quite sure of I that? I am quite certain. What has time to do with thee? Who hast found the victor's way to be rich in poverty? without sunshine to be gay, to be free in a prison cell. Nay, on that undreamed judgment day, when on the world's scrap heap flung, powers and empires pass away. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.